There he is. The man himself. The expertise model. My boy. <laughs> Cinematic fantastic. Atu, Barada, Nikto. I'll show you who I am and what I am. By a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes. As we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. Here, here, here we go. Zoe's finally here. Performing for you. If you know the words, you can join in too. Put your hands together if you want to clap as we take through this monkey rap. Yo. <laughs> was that was that from Donkey Kong Country? And let me continue. He's the leader <laughs> of the bunch. You know him well. He's finally back to kick some tail. His massive foot can grind the dirt. If he drops ya, it's gonna hurt. He's biggest, fastest, strongest too and he's the first member of the kk crew ah king kong king nice. kong so, episode number 18 18 episodes we've come so far and and we're so close to the end of season one it you know think about it about about in january ish is when we actually started off on episode one and we Talked about uh, George Melies, uh, and you know we did that first episode. I mean, think about how far we've come. And now there's just honestly, we wouldn't have Donkey Kong sixty four's amazing Donkey <laughs> Kong rap without the existence of this nineteen thirty three movie, King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. The eighth wonder of the world. If if we could go back in time. You know, I know that would be shocking to to Marion C. Cooper. We'd go back in time and talk to Marion C. Cooper and say, hey, you know, your movie has left such a huge legacy. You know, in the future, they're going to have a video game with a giant ape that that hurls these uh, flaming barrels down and an Italian plumber leaps over them holding a hammer. And he's going to be like, what's wrong with you? You you escaped from the nuthouse? You're a crazy person. Uh, uh, the security, and they'd and they'd grab us and say we were insane. But now we can obtain all of the walnuts and all of the peanuts and all of the pineapple smells. Come on, grapes, melons, oranges, and coconut shells. Yo, <laughs> you know you know so much more about about Donkey Kong Country than I think I would ever learn. It is an infinite song. I played the game. I didn't I didn't know anything about the rap. I just played the game. You just played the game. Hopefully, you enjoyed. Lanky Kong, as well. I remember. I remember the uh, the Donkey Kong and the little junior guy, the the son. I'm talking about DK sixty four. So there was a uh, crocodile guy. What was his name King K Rule? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. I think I remember that. So what we're talking about today is 
King Kong, let's banana split into this, I guess. <laughs> oh, wow. We are we must be loopy today. So, this is the 18th episode. Like we said, we're very close to the end of this end of the season and we have been waiting for this episode for quite a while. It's quite a doozy because we actually do have a lot of information about how this movie uh, was made and how they they kept a lot of records and a lot of science fiction aficionados who kind of start, started out their careers just really pointing to King Kong um, as being their inspiration, along with you know other other things by Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien, uh, the special effects guys who worked on this. I think that it, in keeping all that all that data, there's a lot to 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 cover. So we're going to do our, our best. Uh, what, so uh, what do you think? I think nothing, apparently. I think <laughs> we should jump into it. Yes, this is the 1933 uh, full-length feature film of King Kong. I believe it was directed by Marion C. Cooper. Um, it was uh, produced by RKO. This is one of their big movies. This would be their biggest movie and, like, the big movie of the 1930s, and I would say definitely the one that would be the 1940s is uh, Citizen Kane, definitely for uh, MGM, actually. Yeah, the thing, well, to, to talk about Citizen Kane, I don't know how much money it made at the time, and I don't know what the re- the reception of it was in the reviews, but I think that with Citizen Kane, I, th- I think it took time for people to really see the genius. And, and a lot of people kind of mention it, uh, but I, I really don't know how much money it made. Uh, but that's not the real tell of whether a film uh, is going to stand the test of time. Because there's some movies that didn't make that much money that are, you know, cult favorites and, and changed people's, you know, uh, careers. What they wanted to do with their life based upon these movies. But King Kong was a blockbuster and it made it made lots of money. We'll get to, we'll get to that. It was the first blockbuster in my I, opinion I, at the very least. I don't and yeah, I, I would agree, but um what we think of as the modern blockbuster would be Jaws. Um Jaws is the movie that really set that set that stage uh to ha- have a movie that that sold out, you know, month after month after month. Um this one was really big for quite a while and they had to re-release it over the years. Um, and every time they they released it and put it back out in theaters, um, it did well. So it, it it's got legs. Kong's got legs. So okay, let's start out with this now. I think there's some some similar some things we'll see, you know, with with the Lost World. We'll talk about that. We talked about that. Have an episode. That's a really good episode. Check it out if you haven't uh, listened to it already. It's 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 a really good one. Um, but the Lost World is what I would consider a, a kind of a precursor to the jungle pictures. Um, there were these, quote, jungle films that were coming out, whether they were dramatic or whether they were documentary. They were films that kind of predated uh, King Kong and kind of let them think, hey, th- we could actually do this. And in general, I, I'd also think that it's also the progenitor for the amazing stop motion effects that they have because it's literally the same guy, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Willis O'Brien. This is why I love O'Brien from Star Trek, because O'Brien is the last name of the guy who created King Kong. Wow. Quite literally, it looks amazing. It does. It's, it's greatly improved over the Lost World. Um, uh, the techniques just keep getting better and better. Uh, the, you know, we'll talk about that when we get to special effects. The, the abilities uh, in the camera to 
layer and composite the shots together. But there's sadly no hope of resurgence for this amazing art because it's very time costly. Yeah. And it literally took a year to make this film, like a little bit more than a year. So much that I think Fay Ray can make three pictures in this time, which yeah. is like uh, Most Dangerous Game, uh, Mystery of the Wax Museum, and something else. But she did uh, she did Vampire Bat as well. So, but we talk about Faye Ray. We'll talk about some of those around movies that we, this we've time done. with all the arts of you know, for instance, you know, two D animation where they drew it hand by hand, and to where the stop motion where they molded it hand by hand into motions. Nowadays, they've entirely usurped it with CGI, upon which is taken over everything, and no one would think to do stop motion as popular. Well, no, no, the, the, there's it's still an art form, but the, usually what they do is they don't combine it with live action, uh, you, know, you know, footage the way they did in King Kong. What they end up doing is making completely uh, stop motion animated films like uh, Kubo, Wallace and, Two and Gromit. Wallace and Gromit is more of a clay anima- anima- animation, plast- plasticine, I, th- I think. Again, I haven't watched the making of Wallace and Gromit stuff. Um, Leica Films does that a lot. Uh, I think there was something about a cardboard gnome or troll or something. Of course, uh, you know everybody remembers um, The Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, directed by Henry Selleck, produced by Tom uh, Tim Burton. But nobody does this anymore, really, no. because it's just so much easier to animate a digital model to where you can just move them however you want, as fluidly as you want. And as fast as you want as well. And it just saves so much money that no one went back to 2D. No one went back to stop motion. It was just hidden all the way back in this era. We'll see quite a bit of stop motion, you know, even up up into the 80s. So just, uh, you know, you'll see quite a bit of it before it kind of goes the way of the Dodo for just a little bit. Yeah, puppetry did kind of get hidden as well, but it wasn't really popular too much to begin with. We'll definitely also see some puppetry stuff. There's, like with there's the some puppetry crystal. with uh, well, well, there's some puppetry in Godzilla uh, with the with the Godzilla's face, and it look it, some of it looks okay, some of it looks janky, uh, but you kind of have to forgive it being 1950s. Even still, there's the extremely extremely hidden arts that Melies did. Like, look at his constructions of like. They look like plays and can make, like, figures of, like, the moon with its eyes that open up and down like a carnival. And no one does this anymore. So it's all this bygone era stuff that is the best. It, it, it's honestly the best. It is, yeah. And, and I think a lot of people, uh, you know, do homages to them um, in different, uh, different places. So some people keep that art form alive, but they don't. They don't do it the same way the, that they did it originally. Yeah, which is why I'd recommend looking at some Melias stuff, because you can see all sorts of cool constructions that he did as well. Like, the Astronomer's Dream, like, that moon puppet is very impressive. Yeah, it's interesting that you're you're really focusing on Melias a lot, because it's kind of, I guess it's kind of a... Because that was how we started out. I know, but we're talking about bygone strats, so... <laughs> Right. So here we got we got uh, the jungle film. Okay, what was the jungle film? Well, it was usually had a pattern in it that had an explorer or a scientist goes into the jungle, tests a theory, only to discover some monstrous creature or aberration in the undergrowth. You know, you could do whatever you wanted to do, scientific knowledge, 
just chuck it out the window. You know, decide to clone it, turn it into a theme park, and you know, right. it run rampant all over, and then turn into an entire planet, because that's how Jurassic Park's gone. <laughs> that's how it's gone these days. So a lot of uh, zoos in the early 20th century did not have primate exhibits, so people didn't really get the chance to see gorillas or apes a lot, uh, except in films. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, there's... Movies like Beast in the Jungle in 1913, uh, Tarzan of the Apes, the silent one that was in 1918, Lost World in 1925. Of course, that was with Willis O'Brien, who would later work on King Kong. Um, there's also there's a movie called Chang, a drama in the wilderness in 1927 that uh, Ernest B. Shodzak, uh you called him Shortstack, Ernest B. Shodzak, uh, who produced King Kong, you know, he was able to capture a lot of apes and things like that. I, I want to mention something real quick. Uh, it's often said by people watching this that the character of, of Carl Denham was based off of Marion C. Cooper and had a lot of his personality traits in it. And the reason why is because the lady that wrote most of the script, her name is Ruth Rose, she was married to Ernest B. Shodzak. They They met on an earlier film. Uh, that Marion C. Cooper was doing. It's, it's, well, you could disprove this simply by saying that they are actors in this movie. If if you did not realize, at the very end, the people who gunned down King Kong on the Empire State Building includes the two directors in a play. Oh, uh, the director and, and producer, they, yeah. The director and the producer, Shodzak and Cooper, both got to shoot down their own creations. Yeah, it's it's like it's like they spent... So much of their own blood, sweat, and tears making him, and uh, they shot him down. Oh, whole years of work. It's fitting. It's very. It's kind of fitting. It's like we made him. We're gonna destroy him. But but remember, as the movie says, the the airplanes didn't get him. It was Beauty that killed the Beast. So uh, back back to talking about Ruth Rose. Ruth Rose wrote this, and she patterned the character of, of Driscoll of Jack Driscoll. Patterned him after Ernest B. Uh, Shodzak a little bit. And Ruth Rose was uh, she was the pattern for uh, kind of Faye Ray's part in in the movie. It's kind of like they took some of their personality traits and put them in in the movie. That's why you can see those those elements. But they were they were they were just buddy buddy. I mean, you know, Shodzak and Cooper were just like they were two peas in a pod. Um, I I also in reading a little bit about Ernest B. Shodzak, which we'll talk about him in just a second. There's something that I remembered from another movie that they worked on, which was The Most Dangerous Game. Early on, on the boat, uh, you have um, Rainsford. Rainsford is talking to the doctor and some other people, and he's kind of talking about, you know, hey, uh, when we're hunting, you know, uh, a tiger almost attacked me. And he's, he's, he's giving his war stories, right? That's Ernest B. Shodzak. That's, that's his war stories. He, he, he put those in into that character, except he wouldn't shoot him with a gun. He would shoot him with a camera. And also the way that uh, Carl Denham, he says, you know, that his other cameraman is too scared to get get the good shot. So I ended up having to learn how to do it. It's These are all things that, that they uh, are kind of mirroring their own uh, trajectory before this movie. You know, filming jungle movies together. And then you start seeing these little elements kind of come together. There was a movie... That was a. Um, I won't talk about it too much because it's a little bit uh, problematic. There's a movie called Ingaji in 1930, kind of capitalizing on the trend of, of jungle exploration, and had they had these uh, 
the sacrifice of a woman to these large gorillas. And overall, in terms of racism, it was very rough as well. Yeah, so, it, you're right. So, and, 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 and I will tell you, in King Kong, there's some elements that you could kind of see as being maybe kind of racist. There's some subtext with, uh, with King Kong being seen as uh, a representative of a, uh, an African stereotype going after a white woman. But the thing is, Every time they try to, to throw that at, at the movie, the, the producers and the directors were like, "No, that is absolutely not what we're trying to do." And and if you knew if you knew them and their some of their background, you would see that's not the case. But I will tell you, there was a writer who wrote with Ruth Rose early on. His name is Edgar Wallace, and he is actually still uh, credited on the movie. And I'll tell you why he's credited because a lot of his stuff that that he did. Uh, right before he died, was going to be for King Kong. He wrote the novelization. He was going to write the novel so that people could go, oh, I based it off of a novel, and by a really, really popular author at that. He was a popular author, but he had he, he had these elements of things he would put in there, like they were very colonialist. You know, uh, people from other countries, like in Africa, they're uncivilized, and, and we're civilized, and we need to... You know, we need to bring them kicking and screaming into the 21st century or 20th century, as it were. So but and that was very problematic mindset. Um, But he was a very popular uh, author at the time. But the thing is, a lot of the ideas that he had, they, you know, Ruth and and, and Shotzak and all and and Marion C. Cooper, they changed a lot of those elements enough that it kind of didn't fully resemble what Edgar Wallace had as the storyline in the first place, but they still true to their word. You know, he died. Um, Edgar, Edgar Wallace did so that, but they still gave him a byline in the movie. A lot of times that's, that's a legal thing. You need to give them credit, even if you didn't fully use everything that they did. But some of the ideas that he used included were gorillas battling Komodo dragons. Yes, and they were going to film in the island of Komodo, which is actually that's uh, that's in, in the Indonesia, Java, in that in that kind of Southeast Asia area. Um, and honestly, I don't know how they would get. I mean, that's kind of small thinking if you think about it. Komodo dragons, yes, they're big, but they're not as big as a T-Rex. But, uh, again, this would also be kind of foreshadow a little bit of Godzilla versus King Kong, concerning that gorillas versus lizards were an absolutely perfect idea, even from it the start. Was. Even 30 years earlier. So... This was King Kong versus Godzilla before King Kong versus Godzilla. Well, I'm sure people saw this and went, yeah, that'll work. Yeah, so the thing is, though, they were going to shoot. This is during the Great Depression, and they were going to film for a you know Komodo dragons versus gorillas. They were going to do some that almost sounds like a uh, one of those knockoff mockbuster movies. You know, you know Komodo dragons versus gorilla. Okay, anyway, they were going to uh, have to film in Africa and Komodo, and that would just be really expensive. Now, when they changed it to an island. Uh, which we would call it Skull Island, but it doesn't officially have that name in the original movie. It's called Skull Island by a lot of other uh, you know, novels and things like that, and also the the, the reboot that comes out in uh, late uh, came out in 2017, I think. Yeah, just because people saw resemblance to a school, they did say that there was a Skull Mountain. Skull Mountain, yes, not a Skull absolutely. Island as a whole, though. But so yeah, as well as another thing is that. 
they do use the sets from the most dangerous game concerning it was being built then and they were like you know what this is perfect so while i was being filmed yeah um they were using the sets to go like hey take fey raid and robert uh, robert armstrong who robert, played uh take Din- robert Dinner. armstrong and fey raid up and down the aisle of the jungle and the log and stuff and make a run and stuff oh um now uh willis o'brien was working on uh a a fantasy movie uh he wasn't fully into it but it was it was being it's kind of costly oh and it's called uh creation creation yeah and it was about a group of travelers that were shipwrecked on an island of dinosaurs oh does that sound that sounds very much like this doesn't it so they were saying why don't we combine ideas you're already spending a lot of money on doing the stop motion and you already have some dinosaur footage so we can take a little bit of that and you know use it a little bit they they used some of his early footage to convince R, uh, RKO that this was a doable this is actually doable and they took some of the models that he used for creation to for use in this movie as well so yeah and they scrapped uh the Komodo dragon idea but they but they would come back um you know with with, with this with, idea with, with dinosaurs God's, with dinosaurs and with this idea in uh King Kong versus Godzilla, 1961. So, um, Edgar Wallace, like I said, Edgar Wallace died uh, in 1932, um, just as he was making revisions to his original idea. So they didn't use a lot of the drafts. They still gave him screen credit, like I said. But Cooper did have an idea for the last part of the movie, which came from looking at the Empire State Building one day and going, huh, it'd be interesting to have a gorilla up there, you know, swatting at some airplanes. And then, boom, now we had the ending, and he could move backwards from it. Yeah, they originally were going to call it, I think at one point it was going to be called The Beast, because Marion C. Cooper was really into this whole Beauty and the Beast thing, which we... But we, that's we... just lame. It's just kind of lame. You mean the name The Beast sucked? Yeah, the name The Beast is not captivating. You don't know no, specifically it's what it's about, and you're not drawn by it. You're just like, oh, it's The Beast. Very kind of aloof. But no, you want some King Kong, and that makes a stance. A monkey stance. Now, they had to get, they, they got another guy to, I think, work a little bit with Ruth Rose uh, named uh, James Ashmore Creelman. And, uh, you know, he added a lot of, of, of elements and reworked a lot of stuff. Things like island natives, a giant wall, sacrificial maidens. Uh, that was also added in by a staff writer, Horace McCoy. Um, there was points where um, Creelman had to drop out of, uh, it, was called, it was called The Beast, and then it was called The Eighth Wonder, and eventually it would be called King Kong, but he had to drop out momentarily to, you had to pull out a little bit to go back and work on uh, Most Dangerous Game. It's, it's so great that two really, really good movies came out of this. I mean, it could have been that Most Dangerous Game you know, sucked and King Kong was great, but Most Dangerous Game is really good. And I think it's, it's amazing that both films turned out as well as they did with all the uh, time constraints. But uh, I think that Marion C. Cooper was looking at Creelman's final scripts on it, and it was a little bit slow-paced, had some flowery dialogue, it had some long scenes of exposition, and Ruth Rose, she was recruited to do rewrites. Um, she was, uh, like I said, she was Ernest B. Shodzak's wife. They had met uh, doing a previous uh, film, and she had never written a screenplays ever, 
and she understood what Cooper wanted and just banged it out. But luckily, she could make it pretty well. I guess the acting was pretty good. They weren't as sure as themselves as, you know, something like the vampire bat, which, seriously, really good acting, not so very good budget. <laughs> so I'm just like, they they pumped some acting into that really good. But this, they kind of were, could have been a little bit unsure a little bit, but they weren't, like, stilted. The acting, was, the acting was fine. Overall, this movie is your classic romp and stomp kind of movie where the plot is overall really really simple but it's it's very brisk that's why it's good it really does move it moves really well that's um, why it could captivate and that's why it could go out to such a mass and regardless of who you are what your age was and your preferences you could probably get something out of the movie yeah though it mostly captivated all the boys out there just the the little boys just Staring at awe and, you know, afterwards probably fighting with their little brothers pretending to be Kong and the dinosaur, as you see in this movie. Yeah, there was a, a you know, the model of Kong. They didn't know what his name was. They called him Giant Terror Gorilla. Uh, <laughs> Giant you know, Terror Gorilla number three. Yeah, they didn't know what to call him yet, but um, there was two different models uh, with armatures in it that were used for the stop motion. One of them was 18 inches tall to sit to, to simulate an 18 foot tall gorilla uh, and then there was a jointed 24 inch model that was used in the New York scenes because you had needed a little bit more scale especially with all of these towering skyscrapers you had to have them big enough to you know not be a little speck on the Empire State Building but the thing is his scale does change a lot in this movie Probably, like, every, almost every single shot changes the scale just because, you know, he's scaled up or down slightly depending on, you know, the shot's needs and yeah. stuff. And it's, like, it looks good, but it's, like, no one has a concrete, a concrete, huh, concrete right. idea of the exact scale in feet and meters and inches and millimeters uh, of what Kong... If it was in real life, yeah. What his height actually is, because it changes so much. What throws it off is the is the giant bust of Kong, you know, which is his shoulders and his head, you know, for the close-ups where he can, you know, put a guy in his mouth or whatever. If if you take that and, ex- and, and uh, you know, export that out, it's about 30, 40 feet tall, so if you, if you use that. But... That's not the scale they, that they were going for. So, yeah, the scale's a little wonky. But they definitely make him a lot bigger in Godzilla versus King Kong. I think he gets up to 60, 70 feet in that one. He just, from shots of, from photos of that, just buildings are literally the size of his big toe. No, no, are you like, talking about, height? Are, are you talking about the, 20, the 2020, 2021 uh, reboot, Godzilla versus Kong? Well, or the like one the nineteen sixty one. Oh, nineteen sixty two. Yeah, nineteen sixty two. As far as I can tell, I mean, they make him big in the twenty twenty two one as well. That's the next time we are going to see uh, Kong. Uh, uh, we'll see his. We'll see his son Kiko. We'll see him in the next movie that we're going to talk about on the next episode, um, Son of Kong, uh, which was made. It came, it came out nine months after Kong did. So Kong was still fresh in people's mind. Uh, they were like, this sucker's making lots of, you know, moolah. Let's jump on that. Uh, and I'll have to let you see if you think that that was a good idea or not. Um, 
but there are you know tons of dinosaurs in this tyrannosaurs uh, elasmosaurs um a lot of the ways that these creatures look though and act were based upon scientific knowledge of the time um you know the knowledge we have now leads us to believe that uh the way that the dinosaurs are uh, shown in the movie Jurassic Park and its sequels is probably more like how they moved in real life. And in this movie, you can see that the dinosaurs, especially that T-Rex, kind of have like ovals for body parts, kind of like, you know, how you draw something and you start out with like circles oh. and like the head and then you turn that into like a real thing. It's kind of like they stuck with that oval shape for like the head, the body, Kind of like that, instead of, you know, joining it all together into a fluid S-shaped form, as you'd see in the modern era. So that shows what they thought of dinosaurs then, which is pretty cool. When you do it uh, in, in CGI, you can build it from an armature with bones and muscles on it that actually pull, like, tendons. They could actually, you know, pull, like, like you pull rubber, you know, and el- the, the, there's elasticity. You can put all those different physics elements in it but with this but with the stop motion the, the only physics that they have are the physics you put in it so there's a i think there's a lot more artistry to it um in a way than and, and you get instant gratification you know it looks good on screen you know very quickly um one thing that i would tell you is that that this movie was groundbreaking also in its rear projection and compositing uh i mean ha- how they would take you know, uh, large elements and stop motion elements and combine them with live action. Like, compared to The Lost World, which we saw this and was revolutionary for that as well, and doing that, they did the exact same here, but a lot more frequently and in a lot of different special situations as well. So different variances of things that they threw at the editors. (laughs) And they had to go, oh, now we have to do it where um, they're... There's a log in one particular corner, and it have to it have to map it to the log, and all sorts of stuff like that. It's 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 just they got thrown a bigger challenge, a bigger bone. Yeah, and and also this did take a while to film. It was filmed in uh, several sections or stages, and they got done with the humans well before they got done with the models. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, that took a whole year to do the models alone, and <laughs> that speaks to how easy it is to use CGI and people, and why no one would go back to stuff like this because it's just so much easier with CGI now. And the other actors, the actors actually you know, in between times when they were needed on set, they could actually make other movies. I mean, uh, Bruce Cabot, who played Jack Driscoll, he finished a movie called Roadhouse, and Faye Ray was in Dr. X and the Mystery of the Wax Museum as well. And also, on Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum, she was in that with um, Lionel Atwill, which she also was in The Vampire Bat with. And and, uh, if you want to know about that movie we have that as an episode previous to this so just check that out a lot of the shots that they did in the jungle especially with Fay ray and bruce cabot running through the jungle a lot of that set uh was was set to be um taken down because it was a most dangerous game set they had to take all that stuff down so they were like okay let's finish all the shots and sometimes they'll do that they'll film shots out of order 
they'll say, okay, we need a lot of the shots that take place in the jungle, you know, running, uh, running from Kong or whatever. You don't realize this, but like this one set of like the wall set, you know, it's, it's, it's very impressive wall set and it's had a history. Did you even know that? I, d- I know a little bit. There's something about uh, Gone, Gone with the Wind. Yes, and Gone with the Wind, the King wall, of Kings. Uh, it was in King of Kings. It started out in King of Kings, and then it went to this movie, and then it went to like, a couple other movies, and then into Gone with the Wind being burnt down um, for like... Yeah, it was uh, the burning of Atlanta. Um, there's a there's a scene toward the end of the movie where there's there's lots of you know destruction uh, of of mo- models and sets, diggers and stuff just pummeling the thing, probably like wrecking balls or something, but not that serious. Just you get what I mean. They just pummeled this wall, put fire to it, and the set was no more, as well as Georgia. So let's transition away from Georgia. Let's yeah. talk more about. <laughs> Um, the sounds of Kong. So the, the noises that Kong made uh, were from captive uh, lions and tigers, and you play them back slowly to get that kind of noise. Um, the uh, the guy who did the special effects, uh, sound effects, sorry, his name is Murray Spivak, and uh, he did a lot of the, the grunts um, of Kong. Uh, he, there's a lot of cool stuff like to do the, to the footsteps. He, he, he stomped across a gravel filled box with these plungers wrapped in foam attached to his feet. And the, the chest beating was him hitting his assistant <laughs> who had a microphone on his back. He hit him on the chest with a drumstick. Uh, so they, they used all these different things like a, a puma noises for Tyrannosaur and they, you know, they used At these. least it was consensual abuse. He said, please. Yeah, and Faye Ray, of course, who is known as a, a scream queen because of this movie, she uh, she did all her screams in one recording session, and I think she said something like that it was a asylum of agony. I can't remember. She said, she said something like about agony, and uh, it was tiring for her because she was screaming for like off and on for you know, like 30 minutes so so they could just have stuff to use. Now, there's something that that I, I know that you really you really, being a musician you really liked this. Yes, the music. So the music. They told the, they told the composer Max Steiner to reuse stuff from other previous films. But thing is, for this music, he decided to not do that. He made the score for this movie. It's feature length. It's original. And it's funded out of the director's own pocket. He just went to crazy amounts, like five thousand dollars, which obviously our, our RKO repaid him afterwards. It was for. it was it was but fifty thousand. Fifty thousand. Uh, Steiner. The music was awesome, especially with this music. It just feels perilous. He it, did the score in six weeks, and he recorded it with a forty-six piece orchestra. And if you don't realize this. Just watch a couple of the other movies we've done and realize that there's so much area of the movie where there is no music. And this movie, however, is completely different. It, like most modern movies today, thankfully, has most entire coverage of the movie. 
It started with it started with this movie, and they started. This and movie it- started so much stuff, like the tone, the music, the effects were just revolutionary. Like no one dreamed of doing King Kong, of like having a gorilla on screen actually doing stuff as if it were real. This was this was literally captivated to toys and fiction. This was literally no one dreamed of doing this no one dreamed of doing anything that was other than this. i don't think we would have had godzilla if we didn't you know in in a lot of those monster movies if we didn't have king kong this was the granddaddy to giant monster movies even though it didn't really try to but just we just say that it's a granddaddy and talking about music it was the first to record thing in in a three track system uh, he had sound effects on one track, dialogue on one track, and the music on another. And also it used uh, opera conventions like leitmotifs and things like that. And the music could go in between clips, or at least they tried to make it as seamless as possible. But if you listen as well to some of the other movies that we've done, at least the sound, it stops through every clip. Every clip, they attach the sound to when it was recorded, so when they cut the film, they also cut the music. And, like, the audio as well. This gets a little bit jank sometimes, as you hear. But this movie, like, the music can continue past cuts, which is revolutionary. That is the yeah. word for this film. Yes, it. Uh, the, you know, definitely. I think we're probably saying that word a lot, but that's absolutely true. Just over this movie, I was literally saying, this is so cool. Like, everywhere in this movie. Oh, nice! That was so cool! Oh, that's so cool! For people watching this, they'd just be like... Their jaw would not be able to close in this movie, ever. Oh, this is so cool! That's so cool! Awesome! It's so ahead of its time. I was so impressed, compared to all the other movies that we had done. And from obviously looking at our perspective, I can't tell, like, what style movies were in, uh, overall for everything other than horror in 1933, because we've only done one thing in 1933 other- otherwise, which was The Vampire Bat. That one was pretty good, but that was a horror movie. I haven't seen the scene in 1933 that wasn't horror, so this is just impressive. Yeah, we're going to be moving more towards away from, you know, overt horror and more into, you know, science fiction and and, and adventure. This movie does count as pre-Hays Code because right after it premiered, very shortly after the production code, the Hays production code, they had some issues with scenes that were in that. So when it got reissued in like 55, I think. Or I think it was like thirty thirty eight release. Yeah, there was there was some yeah there was some later in the nineteen thirties release. It was like the thirty nine release. They got issues. Those th- there were some things that that were uh, removed out. If you were to get uh, see, we watched it on HBO Max. But if you were to get King Kong nineteen thirty three uh, on you know DVD Blu Ray now, it's going to have all those scenes that were previously taken out uh, it to would be, be there. one hour long as compared to one hour and 40 minutes which honestly does round out a movie those extra 30 minutes it really does trust me there is a a infamous scene no one has seen it's literally gone 
it's a it's it's a scene that uh, Peter Jackson, the director of the two thousand five uh, remake, he put he 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 puts that scene back in. There's and a scene- he's talking about the infamous spider pit sequence. Yes. To where when they fall down the pit after being shaken off the log, then we get a scene where a bunch of spiders and crabs and other critters just go ham on all these random red shirts. Yeah. Basically. Tentacled creatures, reptile-like creatures, giant insects. Mostly spiders for which it was known. Yeah. And they were just ripped apart in horrifying ways. And so it was just cut never to be seen again. So we don't quite get to see the original way it was presented, but we get to see most of what is presented, save one scene. The closest we have, uh, we we have some stills and things like that, but they kind of cut, the studio cut that out before they put it out uh, in the 1933 release. Peter Jackson did try and remake this, and this took him, this took him a lot of time as well. I think it took him like eight months it's it's gruesome so stop motion is as hard as it was then as it is today so absolutely now the movie it was a huge success and uh opening weekend was like ninety thousand dollars you know and for that time that was huge every time that's been put out for people to rent in in video stores or things like that it, it just it gets lots of play Anytime they do they do re-releases of the movie, it get does really well. And if Archeo was heading toward bankruptcy until now, they're not anymore. It pulled it, them out. It pulled them straight out. At least for a while. Um I think At that least you know for a the, while. RKO I think either I'd have to look and see the history of RKO when when they when they fa- you know kind of failed as a production company. They I think did they m- fail in like 1960, ending with like 1955 being a downward trail. They did do stuff for Disney distribution stuff ed- during then. Oh, that's true. Yeah, stuff like Peter Pan and some of their other productions. Yes, absolutely. Um, of course, uh, like I said, um, the creator of Godzilla, uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka. Uh, we'll talk about him when we get to 1954 uh, Godzilla, but movies like The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which we'll watch on the on the podcast, uh, and uh, you know, in King Kong inspired Godzilla. Um, he says, "I felt like doing something big. That was my motivation. I thought of different ideas. I like monster movies, and I was influenced by King Kong. So it's very influential." They're, they're, and also come to see it when the influencer himself gets to be loaned to Toho for King Kong and Godzilla King Kong and Godzilla 1962 and um I think we're also doing that one as well which should be pretty cool we are um they, they and I'll tell you that there there is a direct sequel um like I said it was there was released nine months after the first film's release that was called Son of Kong and then in the, in the early 60s RKO licensed King Kong to Toho and there was two King Kong movies. They're unrelated uh, to the original. It's Which King was, Kong, uh, King Kong, Godzilla, and King Kong Escapes. King Kong Escapes. We'll, we're going to do both those movies. And also, they kind of did do a little bit of sequelage with uh, Mighty Joe Young. I think RKO did that. Uh, uh, no, no, uh, Mighty Joe Young. Mighty Joe Young is a spiritual sequel. I think it it it's a smaller ape. 
uh, but uses the similar uh, uh, armature and technology that was used for both Son of Kong and King Kong. So they spiritual sequeled it a little bit after. It's not really a King Kong. uh, They don't mention King Kong existing in the movie. So I believe uh, Ernest B. Shotzak and, and Ruth Rose actually worked on that. Uh, movie as well so they you know they were just like hey we're we're on the ape train so there uh, in 1976 there was a uh, modern remake of the movie it was called king kong it was produced by dino de Laurentiis. uh he was an italian producer i had the basically it was basically the same basic plot except the uh the guy who was going to the island he's he's uh he's trying to track down uh, like uh, for an oil company, so you'd, you know. Again, this was the late '70s, and everybody was all about we got to, you know, we're running low on gas. We got to get that gas, and uh, you know they're having a gas problem and a shortage. So they're trying to find a uh, an excellent place to to dig you know, to dig, and and they of course you know failed. And so what they do is they 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 go okay, we'll bring King Kong back. So it, in a way, that's how it mirrors the plot. Um. King Kong does end up in New York City at the end of the movie, but instead of climbing the Empire State Building, he climbs the World Trade Center towers. This was, of course, uh, twenty plus years before they would be destroyed by uh, terrorists. So, um, watching him climb those, you're just like, "Wow, those they were they really existed," you know, and and and, and they've been around for a while. There was a sequel uh, to that movie called King Kong Lives. Uh, it was not as popular. It didn't make as much money as that one did. Um, like we talked about, we talked about P- uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong in 2005, uh, Kong Skull Island in 2017, and and then after uh, it was it was connected to the Godzilla, the legendary Godzilla franchise, and Godzilla vs Kong co- comes out in 2021. Um, there's going to be a Godzilla vs Kong. I think they're going to. It's it's tentatively titled Godzilla vs Kong Two, which that's not very good. Title. I don't like that. I don't like that title, but uh, I don't know why that they're gonna uh, fight again because uh, yeah, they fought because in that it's movie. Just infinite fighting, but the thing is, I-, I think that there are a couple other iconic things about King Kong that aren't in this movie. Yeah. So I'm thinking it might be in like the uh, 1976 or 2005 one, which in particular, one thing is we don't get to see him really actually climb the building up close with with the dame in her in in his hand like we get to see and um we don't get to see him swatting like helicopters or a singular helicopter uh especially in the 2005 one uh you really do get to see him holding her as he's climbing the so building there are a couple more iconic pieces to king kong that were in the 2005 version versus this one but this one still stands as the best. It is, and and it's also it's a tight you know hour and a half ish, um, whereas the the remake is like three hours long. Which uh, uh, you know after after Peter Jackson made the Lord of the Rings movies, they were just like we 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 know you for your three hour long movies. So I and I, I will tell you the movie does kind of feel you start feeling the a the length a little bit in in the Kong remake, but we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. What I can tell you, um, about, uh, I think I may have uh, gone over a little bit about the makers of this movie. Uh, Marion C. Cooper was a director. He, uh, he, he worked with Ernest B. Shodzak, who was the producer 
And Ruth Rose came in and rewrote some of the dialogue and things like that. The uh, Creelman had written and Edgar Wallace had kind of uh, written up a little bit of. Um, of course, uh, the main actors of this movie, uh, Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham, um, who's kind of a, uh, he's a Marion C. Cooper-esque kind of character. Uh, you've got uh, Faye Ray, who plays Ann Driscoll. No, not Ann Driscoll. Uh, Ann, what was her last name? Darrow. Ann Darrow. I don't know if she got married to, to Driscoll, and then they, no, I don't know if that happened. But it was Ann Darrow. And, of course, uh, Bruce Cabot, who played uh, Jack Driscoll. I will tell you about Bruce Cabot is he thought he was uh, trying out for something else when he came to RKO. He thought he was going to be the stunt. Uh, he wasn't really a big acting guy. He's like, I'm not really that great of an actor. It's, you know, he, just said, he, he basically said, you know, you just tell me where I need to stand and what I need to say and what I need to do, and I'll do it. Um, but at first, he, didn't, he thought he was going to be the stunt guy uh, for Joel McCrea in Most Dangerous Game. And when he found he was doing King Kong, he was like, oh, this is dumb. And he walked away. But they kept, but they said, you know, they, they got him to come back and kind of look over some of their ideas, and he, he was impressed. Yeah, he's not the greatest of actors. He does a decent job. He actually played, uh, after doing King Kong, uh, he played a lot more Western-style characters, he was in. He was also in Last of the Mohicans as a villain. He played a Native American guy. Um, said he was a very, you know, very rough and tumble, physical actor. So anything that he did, you know, especially if the, with the westerns and those kind of movies, you know, you did a lot of, you know, roping and riding, and and that's where he kind of, kind of moved into. Um, I think that that, interestingly enough, that's what happened to Joel McCrea. He moved more towards the westerns and things like that, if I if I remember correctly. And overall, that's the place to be, if I'm right. Yeah, well, that's that, that's where things were were heading post World War II, forty five to fifty and fifty to sixty. That was prime western territory. I mean, if you thought that superhero movies are just there's way too many of them coming out, and everybody wants to do a cinematic universe, back in the fifties, it was all westerns. You know, westerns were the big thing. Uh, Steven Spielberg even said that he thinks that the superhero movies of today are going to be like Westerns. We're going to see this whole period as, wow, they just did nothing but superhero movies, didn't they? And then they quit doing them. Uh, I, I don't know if I agree with that or not. But but again, Westerns were where were a lot of these actors would head after World War II. Um, okay, so let's talk about Faye Ray real quick. Um, she was uh, cast as Eve Trowbridge, in the most dangerous game, they were they were thinking, hey, you know, why don't we have an actress that's got nice blonde hair that'll contrast with the dark pelt of King Kong? And so er- early on, before they uh, got Faye Ray in the part, they had uh, went to some other actresses: Dorothy Jordan, uh, Jean Harlow, Ginger Rogers, uh, William. If you've seen any uh, Fred Astaire movies where he's dancing with Ginger Rogers, that was his uh, one of his famous co-stars in that. Uh, of course, she had more like she had blonde hair, but it was, I thought she had—I don't know if she had blonde hair or not. But anyway, Faye Ray wore a blonde wig in the movie because if you uh, watch *Most Dangerous Game*, her hair is darker. Um, in this movie, it's more blonde. Of course, she's wearing a. I also know a couple other things about Faye Ray is that she um, actually it seems she turned down being Rose in uh, James Cameron's *Titanic*. Yeah, though probably the old Rose because she'd obviously be very very old then. 
obviously this got taken up by Glorious from Dirt. from the from the old Dark House and the Invisible Man, which will be a pretty fun one to do. That's our that's our uh, end of season uh, movie. I've seen that one so many times. And again, with the legacy, here's another fun fact: is that she's referenced in the ever so classic Peanuts by a famous comic strip where Snoopy has a dream about King Kong and then afterwards remarks that Faye Ray wasn't in it. So she gets to have a big legacy. I think they also, for when she died, I think they, like, like darkened the lights of the Empire State Building oh, when she died. Yeah. Because yeah. she was so famous for the Empire State Building because of her relation with that movie, though having not been seen... Um, in the hands of Kong going up the Empire State Building until the 2005 version, as we discussed. But Yeah, yeah uh, let's talk about Robert Armstrong. Of course, we remember him as uh, as Martin Trowbridge from The Most Dangerous Game. He's, he, he was the one that you knew, you knew when you saw him on screen with uh, Zaroff in the same scene, you knew he was going to kill him because Zaroff, you see Zaroff's face and you know he's like, I'm going to kill this guy. Yeah, he, but uh, Robert Armstrong is playing, you know, played a kind of a drunk character, uh, kind of a, you know, kind of a jerk, uh, kind of sloppy, uh, low class, I guess. But uh, he plays Carl Denham, uh, a, you know, a mo- movie producer, director, and he wants to do something with his career, uh, the character does. So much so that he will throw gas bombs at King Kong and take him back uh, because you got to come back with something. When they were first starting out this film, uh, the jungle picture kind of thing was heading downwards a little bit, which which that's what got them. This obviously put it back forward into full swing, obviously. Yeah, it did. But at the time. Ha, full swing. Uh, yeah. They were like, we have to do a romantic uh, angle. Um, and the funny thing is they they didn't put Bruce Cabot, uh, who was the love interest of, of Faye Ray. They had a promotional still. Uh, Faye Ray swooning in Robert Armstrong's arms with the caption, Their hearts stood still, for there stood Kong, a love story of today that spans the ages. He is not her love interest in the movie. He, he He's just well known. That's why the reason they put him in there is because he's very well known. But instead he falls for the the other guy who he's literally really sexist. Well, oh yeah, he is kind of. He's like, I... I don't like women, but I like you. <laughs> Great. Um, all right. Anyway, let's. Uh, Robert Robert Armstrong. He did do a lot of work, even into the early '60s. He died. He unfortunately died of cancer, and 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 Marion C. Cooper died within 16 hours of him. Uh, strangely enough, we also. Hey, you know, we got to give some props to uh, the head chief. Of the African tribe. Noble Johnson. Noble Johnson. Uh, you know, he's awesome. Um, I, I will say that this is more of a, a role that he can do, but it seems like it's really treading some problematic territory. And it's also very limiting of a role. It is. He gets to look very cool, though, when he swings his staff around, but yeah. Yeah, but but yeah, but I, I actually think that I like the fact that he can play more than just... Uh, a character that stereotype, and also shout out to that tribal mother that cameos in this movie when she tries to save her child from Kong. Man, she's fast stepping around. 
she she be all about her child. She loves that baby. She saved his life. See, what you can do later is you can go, when the baby is like uh, 12, 13-year-old and doesn't want to clean their room, the mom just comes up to him and says, a giant 18 to possibly 40-foot gorilla, I don't know, the scale changes. Uh, he... He almost He's stepped about to stay. He's about <laughs> he almost stepped on you, and I saved your life. So the least you can do is clean your room. Right. So to end it on that, there is literally infinite things to say about this movie and infinite things that have been said. This movie is so popular that there are bound to be so many podcasts having covered it in its remakes, and overall it has a enormous legacy and was very popular around the male space, obviously, because giant gorillas are cool at all ages. So I won't say that just men can enjoy this movie. I think, yeah. I think pe- people of all ages can enjoy this. Uh, this movie, you know, was definitely revolutionary f- for its its time and the techniques that it, that it used. Also, it, uh, it inspired so many other movies going forward. And everything that was just used in this movie would be used in movies to come. This movie could easily pass up for a movie in the 50s or maybe even the 60s, though obviously its quality outmatches anything that would be there. But quite literally, this would be, this would define everything, the whole asset slate of what movies and cinema would be going forward. And and even if you don't, if you if if you might disagree with the effects and say the effects are not very good, you might you, you know I I somebody might actually say that now though they're wrong, but they can't deny that music. If you just pick one thing in this film other than the stop motion or the compositing or, or the reprojection, is that the music is original and it spans the entire movie. And it, and it uses a multi-part orchestra. We can't say enough about that. The thing is, we take that for granted. There's we so many things... We take all of this for granted. Previous to this, there was nothing like King Kong. Now everything is like King Kong. Well, not like the quality, but you get what I mean. Yeah, I do, I do. And, and, and honestly, going forward... As we get out of the pre This is a era, milestone. As we get out of the pre-code era into season two, we will begin to see radical changes following this movie, and those changes that this movie had would represent going forward into the 40s, and the 40s would be very different than the 30s just because of this movie, most likely. Yes, but but I will tell you this: uh, a lot of the movies going forward use very uh, very many of the techniques, but they don't all use them as well as they did in this movie. There are some movies going forward that you're thinking, man, if you just spent two more hours on the effects, uh, then they wouldn't have this kind of jank. It's always true that that those who who, who created the originals and did all that work. That they are people who stand. It's called standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, there's a famous saying where it says, "If if I reach the stars, it is because I have stood on the shoulders of giants." There's so yeah, many other because yeah. they shot for the moon and they landed, and now people know that they can do that with stuff like CGI and stuff. I, I mean, Meliès even did this with um, shooting to the moon, quite literally, and then R- literally with the trip to the moon. 
So a, a lot of Melius versus now kind of thing. But it, it's a nostalgia trip. I would love to revisit the silent era. I would gladly rewatch those movies. They're they were just good, even though we spent only like seven episodes on them. Six episodes actually now I think about it. We can always look at some of those uh movies and there's a lot of uh Melies's old short uh films on HBO Max if you want to look at those. Um, I can show those to you. Astronomer's Dream is especially a good one. Yeah, there's one about like uh, one about some kind of like a deal with the devil or something. He did a lot of stuff with the devil as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, right. Because you get to use you know magic and special effects. All right, so uh, this movie has a a it is it is a is a nice little plot. Uh, to it. Uh, it's a very recognizable plot because we've seen people copy it In short, so many for times. now we will be Kong, but we're not going to be Kong for long. Right, right. So uh, let's uh, let's take a quick little break, and when we come back, uh, we will expose you to the eighth wonder of the world, King Kong, who was a lord and master of his domain, but uh, now he is in chains. Sadly, but we're gonna we're gonna unleash him uh, on the on the, on your ears in just a moment. So, uh, take care, ladies and gentlemen. I'm here tonight to tell you a very strange story, a story so strange that no one will believe it. But, ladies and gentlemen, seeing is believing, and we, my partners and I, have brought back the living proof of our adventure, an adventure in which twelve of our party met horrible death. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Before I tell you any more, I'm going to show you the greatest thing your eyes have ever beheld. He was a king and a god in the world he knew. But now he comes to civilization, merely a captive, a show to gratify your curiosity. Ladies and gentlemen, look at Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. back how are you guys doing i'm doing good I, wait sorry I, i'm not <laughs> you guys <laughs> sorry. i was asking our listeners of course uh they can't really answer us and tell us they're doing well so i'm just going to jump to conclusions and say that you guys are doing great and you guys are doing magnificent but if you are in absolute like sadness then we can't predict that sorry we will just assume that this is a dystopia and that you are 100 percent okay and that's fine. Yeah. See, everyone's happy. Look at all those smiling faces. Yeah, and then the burning landscape. No, what what <laughs> Exactly. What I'm saying is I think that our podcast is a, a respite and a solace and an escape. And so is an ultimate action movie about a random giant ape that didn't even want to be part of this movie, but he saw a girl and he just had to get the girl. So I he is the true love interest of this movie. He is. Just so you guys know he is the true love interest of this movie, in my opinion. He is a little bit handsy though. He's curious and things like that, but I think I think he needs to be taught how to be a perfect gentleman. He's not In fact, I think his ancestor is Curious George. Possibly. You know, that would be interesting if uh if his species of ape had been taken off the island and, and went back to Africa, and that's where the man with the yellow hat discovered George. Maybe, or maybe Curious George is the grandfather 
of Kong, or even the great-grandfather of the grandfather of Kong. That's quite a stretch. It's kind of like reverse timeism, to where, like, he makes his descendants into the past. Kind of like a, 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 a Benjamin Button kind of situation, I guess. You know what? Whatever works. Uh, I think you can... Whatever <laughs> works in order for, you know, his children to end up in the 1930s instead of using kind of like a time machine, you know, you figure out how to use a time machine yourself. Whatever works. So, yeah, let's get down to a pretty, pretty cool plot of King Kong. And also, j- just so you guys know, this guy is absolutely clueless in terms of what DK64 is, so give him a little slack, he only knows Donkey Kong Country. Donkey Kong Country is the 2D one on the SNES, and DK64 is the cool rad 3D one with the DK rap. Just clearing that up. Yes, that's true. Again, again, uh, again, my memories are a little bit faulty. Uh, I am 45, so that is and bound DK64 to happen. And DK64 isn't as good as Donkey Kong Country but the DK rap definitely makes it better. I played more Donkey Kong Country than I did uh, I did DK64. I play I played Mario 64, uh, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask. We played that like crazy years and years and years ago. Um but at least now the youth of today are discovering what retro treasures exist. And speaking of that, things that uh, that I watched as as a young kid and now that I'm appreciating I'm showing to William, and he's getting a new appreciation out of it. Quite literally, other than Frankenstein and Dracula and the Invisible Man, I have literally seen none of these movies. This is all new. I had not even seen the original King Kong. I don't think I've even seen the 2005 version. I just know of its existence from Legacy. So it's been a very interesting experience going on this podcast. What a long, strange trip it's been, uh, to quote uh, Jerry Garcia of The Grateful Dead. So, uh, speaking of Kong and this adventurous plot, can you lay this out and we can kind of discuss as we go? All right. So basically to sum up this first little uh, introductory segment, so we get introduced to the character of Carl Denham. He is a director, and he's planning to make a movie at a mysterious, unrevealed location by using the ship, The Venture, which is about to leave the New York City dock uh, as we speak. Well, not by time, but in plot-wise, if you get me, I, I guess. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. So, but the thing is, the crew literally, just no one even knows where they're actually going, except for him, but... They know that he's brought a large assortment of guns and gas bombs aboard the ship, and also that they seems that they staffed it with a much larger crew than necessary for piloting a ship. And um, also during this introductory scene, we also get to meet the first mate, Jack Driscoll, and um, Captain Englehorn, whom will be foundational characters in this movie. Plus, uh, as a note, William... Uh some of the only characters that are in the sequel are Englehorn and Denim and I think one other guy. And uh, that's pretty much it. Not even Kong himself. They've got rid of everyone. They've got uh, Kong's son, uh, which I don't know how he managed to... Uh, maybe he, he's maybe he's a deadbeat dad because he made a son and then let him you know, go off on his own, and then that's how, why he's found. Because when you see Kong, he's just hanging out by himself. There's no other apes. 
there's a part where you see Kong's lair, and there might be other like skeletons in there of other apes and things like that, but you don't really see. The thing is, what happened to Mother Kong? Oh, no one knows. Who knows? Who knows? In the remake, uh, not remake, reboot uh, of Kong Skull Island, you actually do see skeletons of, of other ape-like creatures, so it almost makes it seem like uh, this Kong is the last of his race uh, around. And they do mention that there were others previous to him. It's just he's the last of the last. So who knows? Honestly, I think they brought you know the sun into the situation because that was a common thing when it comes to sequels. It's like Son of Frankenstein or... You know, son of Dracula or son of Kong. We have to have a son of something. But yeah, okay. So, no, no, I wanted to. I know, I know you want. I, want, I know you want, you want to get back to the plot. But I was going to ask you a question. Didn't weren't we thinking that Skull Island, which is not really named Skull Island, isn't it like in Sumatra near Sumatra, right? Sumatra is in the Pacific Ocean. And if they're in New York, they would have had to cross all the way down in that steamship, all the way down to the Panama, uh, whatever, the Panama Canal, go through that, go across, you know, Mexico, whatever that is, Central America, and then go from the the west coast of America to Sumatra. So the trip from New York all the way to the area where Skull Island might be is probably a lot longer than we could even imagine. Um, no wonder the uh, Peter Jackson's 2005 version is three hours long because they have to show the entire <laughs> the entire voyage to the island itself. So and they, they really make you feel like it's taking a while. I mean, if King Kong 2005 is that bad, I guess that means that Seven Samurai must have a journey from China, like all the way to Brazil or something, except going east. Uh, West. No, no, no. It, it's not. It's not a terrible movie. It's just. It. It's a little bit longer than you might expect, and I think that people sometimes don't think about how you start to kind of feel the feel the length, uh, because the story is is a very simple story. I'm sure as you'll show, you know, it has a very step by step. When you have a movie like you know the Lord of the Rings, that can be three and a half hours long, and have a lot accomplished in that time because there's a lot going on i think so yeah i don't think that uh the remake is a bad movie i just think that it's it's a little long uh when compared to the original which is so tight and it's uh it's so uh you know good with with where it spends its time uh i guess i was just i don't know i was just thinking out loud about you know you said they left from new york and i was thinking okay sumatra that's in pacific ocean so they would have had to cross over the Panama Canal to get there. But anyway, enough about that. Enough about that. Let's continue getting with this introduction part of the thing. So, basically, Denim, he feels that his picture would be incomplete without a lady. So, since he needs this lady, but he can't get one because he can't really convince anybody, especially on such short notice and to who knows where, for who knows what, specifically... He really does need a lady. He absolutely needs it. Otherwise, critics would claim that his film was bad because he says that they always claim that films would be better with a love interest. Right. So he storms off in his coat to go off to wherever he would find woman. And in this case, it's apparently downtown in the woman's home mission. 
which basically was kind of like a refugee place for people who were poor and destitute in the Great Depression. Um, this was common around times to see lines and lines waiting at stuff like these for things like soup and other goods as well for eating because they just couldn't afford food. They could afford King Kong, though. It made a ton of money, but <laughs> I guess the escapism was enough to warrant all of their money, even though it was just they needed it to survive, but instead they spent it to go watch this movie. So... Anyway, he doesn't really see anybody particular just going up and down the line, but he does get toward a fruit stand where there's a young blonde woman attempting to steal an apple, But and then the stand dealer goes, hey, you're going to steal my apple. The thing is, she's like, no, I'm not. I was thinking about it, but I'm, I didn't. That's the thing. And so he's just absolutely, like, grabbing her, and she's like, you're a thief and get you arrested or something, but Denim is, he just comes to her defense. He gives the owner a dollar, tells him to scram, and we then get to meet Anne Darrow, is the woman. So Denim and Anne Darrow are talking in a cafe, where he pays for his meal, and thanks Denim before he lays out his deal, which is leave tomorrow on a ship to go who knows where for a movie, and that's what he needs the lady for. She also explains that she only has an uncle around as well, so she could really use the job. But she didn't. She's like, well, I, I don't even know who you are, actually, though. You haven't even told me who you are. And it's like, oh, right, I haven't introduced myself. Hey, I'm Carl Denham. And that's honestly just weird. The the times were very weird around then, where it's like, I'm just going to insert myself and go, you're going to be in my movie. And it's like, I haven't even introduced myself, but I'm just going to go, hey, be in the movie. Also, that may be Carl Denham's way of doing things. The project is more important than his name. But the thing is, though, you know, she doesn't know who he is. So, of course, she's going to be like, I am very nervous about doing this. But but she knows his name because she's heard of some movies that he's done. So at least yeah, he should have led with that, honestly. But he also insists that, you know, he's being strictly professional and that there's no funny business. And um, he's like, hey, will you be the lady for my picture? And she's like, yes. And Denim is like, yeah, let's go leave it Dawn. So they're going to leave it Dawn. Thing is, it's kind of weird to ask for no fun, funny business. And th that's because most women were around for the funny business. And they just expected it when you're assigned a job. Because... Generally, the Times didn't have women getting, like, job jobs, but it's like they can definitely be, like, actors, but they wouldn't be, like, summoned off the street that desperately. But he really needs it, so who's who am I to tell? Well, I mean, f funny business means uh, this is serious. Uh, I'm not going to do this to take advantage of you. You know, I'm not going to be skeezy. So he had to convince her because, I mean, she was probably thinking, well, I'm kind of down on my luck. Why would he be going for me? So this is probably going to be skeezy, so he has to convince her that it's not. So they are on the venture, I guess, right? They are, and they're, they've set sail and weighed anchor, or they're about to. But the thing is, it's early the next morning, and Jack the first mate is shouting orders to the crew above deck as the venture is preparing to sail. They are importing cargo and the gas bombs and all sorts of stuff. 
that Carl Denham wanted. Uh, thing is, Anne is also on the ship. She approaches to watch the, the business being done, but Jack literally just whips around to look at her, but he accidentally punches her in the chin, and then she's like, ow. Jack is like, what, what were you doing here? And Anna's like, I wanted to see the preparations. I've never been on a ship before. But Jack says he's never been on one with a woman before, and he finds them all to be nuisances. Yeah. His his views toward women are extremely problematic. He's a great uh, leading man, because he's just like... He's a great leading man. They force him to be the romantic interest. Right. And I don't even know why. His views on women are unacceptable. And he is not a good boyfriend. Right, right. Just Just watch this movie and you'll see. So, Anne obviously doesn't like that, and she's like, well, I'm not going to be a nuisance at all. Jack says that she already has been, just for being a woman. Oof. So, (laughs) the ship weighs anchor, and it sets off, just as this happens. So, during the voyage, Anne also gets to talk with Charlie, who's the ship's cook before Jack starts to approach. Thing is, Charlie is also a problematic figure. He doesn't even sound Chinese, but he they try and make him look Chinese. Someday me go back to China, never see no more potato. But he doesn't even sound Chinese at all. He could pass up for like a normal man. They don't even try and give him I an think accent. I think here's the thing. I think he's a Chinese American uh who doesn't have a thick accent, but the way they've made him speak is as if he doesn't know English very well. He sounds like a Chinese-American actor who is having to pretend like he doesn't speak English very well, and it comes off a little stilted. But hopefully, I mean, he doesn't have a lot of uh, screen time, so you don't... Yeah, thing is, he only gets two scenes. You could literally cut the character. You could replace one use that he does get for another thing. So The, uh, the actor Andy Serkis, who... Uh, portrays Kong in the motion capture in the 2005 version. Uh, he also plays a character called The Cook, and he actually does get more lines and, and get some more uh, screen time. And is probably actually a better actor in terms of trying to be Chinese. He doesn't play a Chinese character. Thank goodness, yeah. because that would be such an issue. Jack approaches her and he asks, Why are you above deck? She explains that Denim wanted to do some test shots of her, uh, Jack says that if he were director, she wouldn't be here. Wow. And, um, Anna's like, well, she asks if Jack still thinks that she's been trouble, and, uh, he responds that she is, by virtue of being a woman. Major oof. Denim suddenly appears, remarking that Anne and Iggy the monkey, who is right beside her, appear to be Beauty and the Beast before Anne leaves to go dress, which is interesting because Denim also says to Jack... That's his movie premise, that it's Beauty and the Beast. And um, they also exit to the bridge to reveal the real heading as well, because he's like, are you finally going to tell us where we're actually going? And he's like, in fact, I am. So let's go do that. We then get to the reveal that they are currently past Sumatra, and Denim replies that they are now going to go southwest. Anglehorn says that there's nothing that way, but Denim then reveals a map of an uncharted island drawn from memory. And it basically covers the island how it is. There's a little tiny quartered-off section where there's a native village, and the rest of it is jungle with a huge mountain called Skull Mountain. And just so you know, this is Skull Island, but they don't call it Skull Island in this movie. 
they don't give a name to it. It kind of looks like a skull, but they definitely called the skull mountain a skull. So definitely you could say that the entire island could be known for skulls. So yeah, that's kind of how how they call it later. They 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 call the island Skull Island. They've retroactively named it right. So when Anglehorn asks what Denim expects to even find there, Denim is like, "Did you ever hear of Kong?" Anglehorn replies that he believes that Kong is some kind of god or spirit from native superstition. Uh, Denim says that he wants to see if Kong is real and know what Kong actually is. And that's his mission, other than obviously to film him and put him in a, a movie with Andero, which is what we see with the next little scene where he films Anne looking up and screaming for her life. Throw your arms across your eyes and scream, and Scream for your life! And they're just like, whoa, what do you think he's supposed to expect there? What's he think she's really gonna see? And turns out he's right. It is a giant creature. An interesting thing is... In this scene and in this movie, I recommend you watch this movie for one thing, a little bit of a history lesson. We've been talking about and hyping up the Unchained Camera by Carl Freund. This is the camera he invented, and we get to see it in this movie, as it was in the Times. So take a look at it and look at the amazingness that he invented and designed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, next scene, after passing through a fog barrier, we get to see Skull Island. It's really cool. And Denim Jack and, and a large party of sailors all go to shore to see a strange ceremony in a native village. So, what's happening is that the island chief, he's watching over as men dressed in gorilla costumes dance around a woman covered in flowers as they're chanting Kong. And this scene is amazing for, like, its soundtrack. It has, like, the native ceremony even has its own theme song with, like, a, like little trumpets and, you know, the chanting of the Kong. You can just hear the energy in it. Holy mackerel, what a show! This is why I would recommend watching this movie is because... It just feels like something that would be normal nowadays, kind of, but not really, because it's just amazing. Like, for the time, really, you wouldn't have any of this, but thing is, you do have it. And so it's got original soundtrack, hand-funded, out of his the director's own pocket, and it's $50,000. $50,000 for an epic original soundtrack. Max Steiner was the was the arranger and composer and he had a a 60 I think it's 50 to 60 person orchestra uh they did they did late motifs just like you do in opera you know where every, everybody has their own theme uh you know and it's playing underneath the dialogue they've got the sound effects the dialogue there are just so many scenes in this movie that are just wicked awesome in my opinion, that is how you describe this movie. If you watch it uh, on a wide screen, just turn up the sound. Uh, you'll be glad you did. That I ultimately recommend watching this movie. It is a freebie. Well, I mean, not like free to get. I, I don't know, but I don't really know. If but. you've got HBO, if you've got HBO Max, it's on there right now, along with Son of Kong. But if you want to have a copy for yourself with really good quality. Uh, you can definitely snag uh, a, a Blu-ray copy uh, when you get a chance, and we'll put a link to that 
on the so website. You've got to find a good one because some of them can could add or subtract scenes. For instance, um, some of them add an overture, um, which is basically, you know, as people are being seated, they play music with like a black screen or something. And it's like a four-minute overture. Thing is, people claimed that this was in the original movie, and it wasn't. So people retroactively added. It was added, I believe, actually for uh, the television version. It is a pretty wild story. All of the scenes that were, I think, censored or, or, or shortened after the fact when they did reissues of the movie in the theaters and on TV... Uh, all of that was put back in for any modern Blu-ray copies that you might see. Trust me, if I put a link to the Blu-ray from Amazon in our blog post so that you can purchase that for yourself, I'm definitely going to pick the one that's going to have all the scenes uncut. Especially, you don't want to cut scenes. I mean, adding scenes could be a bit iffy, but... I mean, it's better than having them completely cut. There is a, a one-hour version of King Kong. That's the one that, like, most people see, like, afterwards when they, you know, the the Hayes Code people came into the scene and were like, hey, we see some things that are problematic with your film. Let's, you know, uh, cut a little bit of that up. It won't harm your film at all. Meanwhile, it cuts down, like, 40 minutes. Yeah, but the, the Blu-ray version has has all the all the footage back in, of course. It's the original as it was meant to be seen. Yeah, that's what we saw, and we feel like it is the good, and you shouldn't cut but anything nobody, out of King Kong. Nobody has the scene uh, from the with the spiders uh, in the in the ravine, you know. Right, that was cut early on because people didn't really like. They cut it before they even put out put it out in the uh, original release uh, in in the theaters at the time. It could have been out for like a small little smidgen, but then people didn't like it, so they took it out. So then Denim decides to set up his camera and he tries to film the ceremony. But thing is, the chief saw him pull out the camera from behind the bushes. It's a it's a really obvious camera to be able to see since it's really tall. And uh, he begins to approach the party uh, with his men. Thing is, Captain Anglehorn apparently knows their language and he can figure out some stuff from the natives. I think that he knew some other islands or knew some other peoples that are similar to them. And so he was like, he recognized one word in there and then he was able to thankfully or usefully speak their language enough to know that, you know, they are wondering why they're there. Uh, they do notice Anne, she's there and they call her the golden woman. They do. Yeah. And another thing that they figure out is that the woman in the center who has a bunch of flowers on her, they're doing a ceremony uh, with her as the catalyst or, you know, the main attraction. Uh, they called her the Bride of Kong. So that's pretty interesting. So, but anyway, yeah, they do see Anne. They call her the Golden Woman just because of her hair. Look at the Golden Woman. Yeah, blondes are scarce around here. And then the chief offers to trade six of his women for her. He literally is just like, I gotta have her. My goodness, that that's a steal. Thing is, Anglehorn says they don't have a deal, so that really makes them really ticked off, and the tribe just starts to attack. Thing is, the crew retreats. Thankfully, they don't get 
beaten with clubs and spears. Well, they've got their weapons. The weapons of the people uh, on the ship are um, they're way better than than what they have. They're meant to kill elephants. So they've got multiple multiple rifles, at least tw- and gas bombs aplenty. Yeah, the, look, I mean, the, this is a people that have lived their whole life on an island, have never seen any technology. Uh, there is no way that they could. I think that Denim did made the right choice. He's like, I don't want to upset, you know, the these people just, you know, just to make my film. Um, so I'm, we're just gonna back off and you know and probably you know try again another day. Maybe make friends another time. So that night, Jack and Anne decide to talk about the encounter. the The conversation goes to where Jack says he was kind of scared for Anne. And he's come to care a lot for her. And then he goes, hey. Say, I guess I love you. And upon that, he's like, hey, I love you. Will you love me too? And then Anne is just like, yes. And then she hugs him and they kiss on the lips. Honestly, that is not... There was literally no no romantic chemicals. All it was is he like... He was like, hey, I love you. Um, I hate other women except you. So <laughs> that is not grounds to immediately just start kissing somebody. But thing is, Cooper, I guess, wanted... He was like, well, I gotta have romantic interests, so I have to have a human romantic interest, so I'm gonna decide to be this dude, even though he's an absolute jerk toward woman. My dad! You hate women. Yeah, and and to to be honest though, it the only way you could really make this work is if he is, you know, he 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 really does care for her, but he's masking it in this false bravado kind of toxic masculinity, as you might call it. If you really want to make the case that he's uh, afraid of how he feels about her, how she makes him feel. Uh, but that's kind of a stretch. I think I'm... That is kind of a devil's advocate kind of thing, honestly. But um, Anglehorn then calls Jack to the bridge, needing him for, you know, sailor duties and such. And Anne is like, I'll wait here for you. Turns out the natives come and capture her from literally canoeing off to their ship and clawing their way up the hole and capturing her. Whoop-de-doo. So, okay... But fortunately, Charlie finds that a bracelet was left on the ground in the struggle, and he then goes, hey, there was an intruder here, and Anna's missing. And he calls, everybody on deck, everybody on deck, and everyone's just absolutely up. They're like, what is it? And this is his only use in the movie to say that Anne has disappeared. They could easily realize this in the morning, except it would be too late, obviously, but... (laughs) Well, that's what the movie required. They 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 get the gas bombs, they get the guns, they they go in full attack mode. Of course, by the time they get on onto the island, uh back on the island, you know, uh, uh Anne has already been prepped to be the bride. Yes. This is a really really epic scene. The music is the good ceremony music. You could just see the scale of this wall. As there are the, you know, the the native people just marching in a circle and beating their chests, chanting Kong. And it just, it compounds to this ultimate, just epic, like, ceremony. And then there's, like, a crowd just forcing Anne through that gate. 
And then there's a big hush of silence as we wait for Kong, and Anne is tied to the two posts. Uh, the two posts were literally right outside the gate. And um, also we do get a, uh, the chief swinging his, his big giant rod around, which is really awesome. And I was just like, man, this is... I did not expect this for the time. I seriously didn't. This would probably be like 40s and 50s territory. Well, also, the, the thing is, this... You get buildup of suspense. It does. How, it, how how big of a creature must this thing be for this giant wall to have kept it back? And it's like, oh no, it's it's coming. And you you get the you get the build up to the reveal. I think according to the making of this, they were saying, hey, you know, Mr. Cooper, we need you to move the Kong reveal scene further up in the movie. And he's like, no, no. I've been waiting too long. Thing is. Kong, when he's here, he does not go away. This is a good contrast to other monster movies, giant monster movies, I guess, to where it's kind of like all about the people, and then they, you know, they go to the monster, but then they go right back to the people, and, you know, back and forth, kind of a little bit. Yeah. The thing is, this movie doesn't do that. Once it's about Kong, Kong stays in this movie for the entire time. He's front and center, and yeah. When we see Kong... I put my reaction to this at the beginning, but when I see, like, when I saw, like, the real-life Kong with, like, the puppet kind of looking thing version, you know, they have the hand and the foot, they also have the face. When I saw that, I was just like, my boy, because that's what it is, it's my boy. Yeah. And he's finally on the screen. And I'm gl I'm glad they waited for a little while for the reveal. Uh, they do it's, it, in some movies. They don't pull that off very well, but they definitely do in this one. Uh, I'll have to get your opinion on the other giant monster movies that we might see where they hold off on the reveal. But that'll be for a little bit. Yeah, that'll a little bit. Be a bit more to the nineteen fifties. We'll get to see Godzilla, and that'll probably be like the first other giant. Monster oh no, no, movie no! Other uh, than King Kong for a little bit. I would say I would say we do get some other giant monster movies, but. Uh, not very many. So, like, like a beast from twenty thousand fathoms, very similar to a Godzilla kind of movie, except he's on all fours. He's reptilian. He's on all fours. He is stop motion, and he does rampage through a city, and it's it's glorious. I I like it a lot. You have to let me see what I think of it when I get to absolutely. It. But for now, Kong, yes, King Kong himself, and he's looking at Anne who has been sacrificed to him in an epic ceremony. And he decides, yes, I'm going to get Anne. So that's what he does. He grabs Anne, and he makes off with Anne. Uh, the rescue team arrives just as this occurs. Jack does manage to see Kong and where Anne went. So then they decide to just run into the jungle after Kong. They The team does get to see his footprints as they... They try and track Kong through his footprints, and they're just enormous. So, and it's like, imagine how big the actual ape is. My goodness. His, his, his cannon height does fluctuate a lot, like, literally per shot basis. But you could easily say that he is at least, like, 10 feet. At least, but that's a that's a big minimum. That's a big minimum. I would say fifteen. I'd say thirty to forty feet. Thirty to forty would probably be the good guess for what he actually is. Thing is, it changes per shot, so it's very hard to tell. 
uh, it's not long before they encounter dinosaurs in this jungle. And the first one that they seem to encounter is a stegosaurus. And it's wandering the jungle. Upon seeing them, however, the beast decides to charge at them. They bring it down after trying a gas bomb. And then, since that didn't work, they, they shoot it. Because that's how you solve everything. Uh, toxic masculinity, am I right? Right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, their next course of action through tracking Kong is that he goes into this giant swampland. They create a raft in order to, since obviously Kong can just step through it just easily. They can't, so they have to get a raft. Uh, thing is, they have to build this raft out of logs uh, from the environment, which obviously takes a long time concerning saws. I don't even know if they actually brought saws, so they probably have to chop it by hand. Karate chop. They probably had, like, machetes or axes or hatchets. Something. I would. Anyway, when they finish, Kong is just absolutely gone. They don't know where he is, but thing is, they're going to go through this swamp lane anyway. So, thing is, as they're rafting, uh, we get a huge brontosaurus that emerges from the water to attack the raft. Thing is, people see this as the kind of like the origin of the idea for Loch Ness, and I could easily see that. But another thing in this movie to think of is they thought that brontosauruses were absolute machines. In this movie, they, they just literally choose their most all of their men, just this one dinosaur alone. It's the biggest dinosaur of all of them as well, and they're just absolutely killed. It easily destroys their raft and several of their men. There's no plant eater dinosaurs in this movie. It's a plant eater, though. It is. The thing is, they, they just treat it as this absolute, like beast predator when commonly nowadays people would go oh they're just gentle giants thing is back in the 1930s that that you were just wrong on that front they did have in the in the remake of this movie the 2005 they had there is a brontos they're kind of a brontosaurus uh species but they have like a a stampede and and that's the scariest thing is is they're gonna bang into you and you're gonna step on you and you're gonna die. That's the scary part. Yeah, it is. So fortunately, Denim Jack and a few others managed to escape it onto land, and they also managed to pick up Kong's trail again. So they continue along this trail, and they also pass a log bridge spanning a chasm, and this is also a set from the most dangerous game as well. Um, which is pretty cool. Check that out too, guys. It's amazing. I love it. It's it's a good it's a pretty good movie. So further into the jungle, King Kong sits down his bride in question marks, I guess, atop the tree. Uh he does hear the crew approaching. He heads off to go deal with these bozos. Uh, upon seeing them, the men run back to the log bridge and Kong just absolutely grabs and twists it. Rock a bye, baby on the treetop. When the wind when the king drops, when the, when, the, when the king shakes to the ravine, you'll drop. Several men plummet to their deaths to the infamous spider pit. Uh, we never got to see this, but this is the this would be the spider pit scene where we get various creatures. Uh, most of them spiders, uh, but some of them look like crabs. There are other assortments, and they just absolutely feast violently upon. Uh, these men. We we do we do actually. Peter Jackson actually. Peter Jackson did. He did that like scene. A, he did. He he does that scene. Yeah. He did try and like recreate the scene 
the way it was, which it it was as time consuming as it was at the time. So that shows that no one does stop motion anymore. They just do CGI. Then Jack is just trying to hide into this crevice and he's trying to escape it. Thing is, Kong, uh, he's shooking everyone off and he's going after Jack next. And he's trying to reach his hand into the crevice and swat at it. Thing is, Jack pulls out a knife and he stabs Kong hand, Kong's hand. <laughs> Kong Thing hand. is, Kong no likey. But <laughs> he's distracted by Anne being accosted by another dino, which starts an epic WWE fight, Kong versus Dino. And yeah, we do get to see their designs for the dinosaurs in this movie were a lot different from what they'd be normal today. Like, in general, a lot of the body parts for this kind of Tyrannosaurus Rex-looking thing is a lot more rounded versus the smoother look that we get to see later with things like uh, Jurassic Park and, in general, uh, the way that they're portrayed. And the uh, the wrestling match between them was actually acted out uh, f- for the stop-motion people by... Oh, by the producers and the directors? Yes, Oh, that's cool. They they were fans of of old school kind of wrestling, like they would have in the you know in the circuses and stuff like that. And as I said, this predicts King Kong versus Godzilla, as do multiple different little factors. It's so easy, just lizard versus gorilla. It's such an easy concept. So, despite his strength, Kong struggles to keep it at bay during this fight. Well, we also get a pretty cool tiny little scene where. You know, the dinosaur pushes Kong into a tree uh, that Anne was on, causing it to fall over, trapping Anne under it. Thing is, the camera, like, tracks the movement as it goes, with Anne still on it. So it's pretty cool. They probably, like, only moved the stop-motion part and keep the the regular uh, Anne part, it's like, the same. But it's still, I was just amazed at this shot. It was uh, awesome. It really was. Um, so, Kong then snaps the jaws of the Tyrannosaurus Rex, and by pulling them apart from the hinge, uh, he literally even plays with it to make sure it brokey. So, then Kong does his victory chest beat before taking Anne into his cave. And I was like, yes, a man cave, obviously. Um, so, Denim is gone back for backup, and Jack has followed Kong inside the cave, and he sees Anne on a ledge. Just then, we get an elasmosaurus that slithers toward Anne. Just everyone wants to, to just get a piece of Anne. When I originally saw this movie years ago, I always, maybe it was the quality of what I was watching, but it looked like a, like a python or something to me, but... It didn't really look like it had all four of its fins. Yeah, but if you if you That's if you watch it, kind of, you could say it's a lot. It, it, it is. It actually is. It looks very like Python esque, but there's a rounded middle to it with uh, four uh, flippers on it. So it is an elasmosaurus, I will say. It was a very 1930s-esque yeah. picture of what they thought it would be. It was Nessie. It was basically Nessie. Thing is, we got that earlier with the Swampland scene. Right. But, so Kong is just like, oh, not this again. And the Elasmosaurus almost chokes Kong to death, but Kong takes the cake. Uh, Kong then brings Anne to a cliff outside the cave, and he begins to investigate her clothing. Uh-oh. And this is 
a problematic cut scene by the Hayes Code because they're like, this this scene cannot be shown again. But thing is, we still have it now. He's touching her and smelling her perfume, I guess, on his fingernails or something. From the from the cloth of her clothes. King Kong, you're a creeper a little bit. You need to treat women with respect, bro. Thing is, he's not much of a person that doesn't treat with as respects as Jack does. If you get what I mean. Oh, wow. But thing is, Kong doesn't understand. He doesn't understand at all. Kong knows smart. He's like a baby. He's like a giant baby, man. So, thing is, Jack accidentally alerts him to his presence by the classic kick over a rock and it makes a little pebble sound. Uh, Kong then leaves Anne to go deal with this sucker, only for a pteranodon to descend and try and carry Anne away. And it's like, give my man a break. (laughs) So, Kong absolutely... Pommels it to the ground, just 180 to twist. And, but thing is, Jack rescues her while Kong is distracted. And Kong just absolutely chucks the pteranodon off a cliff, just in time for them to narrowly escape. And he also decides to give chase. So we're getting toward the end of the movie already. And (laughs) it was a ride. It was a big ride. Most of the movies spent in the jungle, man. They're escaping over the cliff on a a vine. And this reminded me of The Lost World where they're going down the cliff on the vine and the ape beast-like creature pulls, pulls that vine. They do the same thing in this. Kong pulls on it and they plummet. Uh, don't they plummet into the water? Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, but in the Lost World, it was like dinosaurs. In this one, it's dinosaurs and a big, giant, humong- humongous gorilla. Yeah, the only the only ape-like person in the Lost World was like uh, five foot tall, so not that big. Yeah, it was human. It was humanity, right? <laughs> we were them. So, we are the monsters. We are the monkeys. So. Jack and Anne are helped inside as everyone's preparing to leave. Thing is, Denim does not want to leave yet. He wants to put his gas bombs to use and capture Kong. And because he didn't come here for nothing, after all. So Kong arrives to the scene, smashing through the gate, intending to get his girl back. Uh, They might as well have made their houses out of cards, because they get smashed just so easily. And people get eaten up, man. And people get eaten. Quite literally, he grabs one native and he just puts him in his mouth before throwing him aside, and he just absolutely crushes this vast fortress that they have. He steps on and a dude. And he does. He even grinds a native into the mud under his own foot. He's just absolutely hating on them. He is savage, literally. He is savage. So the crew then retreat to the ship before Denim lobs a gas bomb at Kong, taking him out with the big thunk. Thing is, the Stegosaurus, literally, the Stegosaurus couldn't be taken out with just a gas bomb, which is kind of funny in my opinion. I th- I think the Stegosaurus was maybe bigger than Kong. I don't know. No, it's not as tall as Kong, well, but okay, the right. girth is there. The girth is there. But I will tell you... Monkey belly. St- stegosaurs, actual Stegosaurs, were not as big as the one in this movie. Everything's bigger. I do agree. It took you a, a whole hallway, I mean. So, um... Then, with Kong just thumping to the ground, Denim announces that he's going to bring him to New York as his greatest show ever, Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. So, sometime later, Jack and Anne got engaged, and they're backstage at Denim's first public exhibition of King Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. 
I, I'm going to do that every single time I say that now. Wow. It, it's just, it, it's mandatory. Uh, mandatory for what? The the, the, the eighth wonder of the world? Uh, yes. King Kong, the eighth you wonder of the world. It. You didn't do it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> you had to wait for me to say oh, the whole thing. okay. I got you. Okay, so... The members of the press arrive and they begin berating them with questions, but they're asked to wait until Kong is actually presented in order to do that and take their photos. A decision that Denim would come to regret because when he shows the world Kong bound in chrome steel chains and restraints, which I also made a joke about this where it's like chrome steel, the newest browser hot off of Microsoft. Wow. <laughs> or something. Chrome steel, eh? It's the new web browser. It sounds it sounds like a web browser, Chrome Steel. Well, n- it's a new version of Chromium. It's not just that. He says it's like uh, it's not just steel. It's Chrome Steel. So it's like it's real. No one makes things out of Chrome Steel. What is even Chrome? It's is Chrome like an alloy. No, they make they make a. It's a shiny alloy of of, of metal, and they put it. And it's on the the front of cars, and and it's like those get bent up. No, really? it's its own element. It's a- <laughs> chromium if it's, it's its own element. <laughs> no, it's and the thing is, b- bumpers get crushed really easily. They, just, they run into a, a concrete median and they suddenly just snap. So, do you, you really think it's going to hold Kong back? It does not. Thing is, when they actually tell the press, you can take your pictures now that Kong is actually out. The camera flashes. Absolutely enraged Kong. No flash no flash photography. He just absolutely breaks free of his chains. And everyone just absolutely, the whole crowd flees as Kong is making his way through Times Square. The scene where the Brachiosaurus what? went on through London does not compare to this. Plus, this is America. Uh, Jack and Anne escape to a nearby hotel, but Kong finds them uh, after dropping a woman mistaken for her to her death. This was also cut by the Hayes Code, obviously, because yeah. he literally just picks up a random woman, and he's like, eh, you're not there, and you need to toss it over his shoulder, and sh- they get a big scene. They get a big scene of, like, falling. Excuse me, addendum mortis. Uh, they, he had... <laughs> addendum mortis. Primatus ad- addendum mortis. He, he, he ape kills her. Exactly. So, uh, Kong, he's captured Anne. Anne tries to get her back. Uh, thing is, Kong just absolutely hates this one train. Uh, this was apparently to pad out the time because, uh, uh, there were 13 segments in this movie and (laughs) Mary C. Cooper was, uh, superstitious. So he's like, ah, nah, man, uh, you know, we can't have 13 scenes. How about we have a 14th one? And, uh, he was actually planning this all along. So he got to add his 14th scene, which was that Kong derails an entire train for literally no freaking reason. At all, he just hates trains. Well, I thought that maybe he he, he hated like he thought it was a plesiosaur or something. Maybe, but man, he hates trains. So the the crew reconvene at the police station where the radio says that Kong is climbing the Empire State Building, and this is the famous ending. Did you know that the Empire State Building was only finished two years earlier? So. No one had ever seen this happen before to the point where the Empire State Building was being climbed because it's new. It was just completed two years ago. So this was a big novelty and this was a big reason you could see the movie because you have the poster with him on the Empire State Building. Everyone talking about him on the Empire State Building. So you definitely know he's on the Empire State Building. Well, plus, plus, you know, they just heard about this being finished. uh, And so it was still something that people... 
you know, would go all the way up to the top and, and, you know, able to look out. So that would be an amazing view. Oh, yeah. That would be an amazing view. So Jack then proposes planes is their solution to take down Kong. This is a really famous ending. So Kong sets Anne down at the top, and he just roars defiantly. He can see everything. He can see his whole territory. Uh, then we get the planes. They come off of the the runway. Yeah. And there's like four or five of them absolutely like snaking their way up and down all the way around King Kong. They shoot at him unsuccessfully at first, and some of them are indeed swatted down. But as he's swatting at him, thing is, Kong has cracks. And that is cracks with a K, obviously, because I that that's the pun. Uh, so once he's finally got wounded by the bullets, uh, he holds Anne and admires her for the last time in his life before setting her back down. And thing is, these final five shots after he gets pummeled, done, done, done. Kong loses his grip and he plummets down to the ground from the top of the skyscraper to his death. And this is the end of the movie. Thing is, there is one little last scene. It's a famous scene. It's got a famous line. A big crowd gathers around Kong as there's a policeman who remarks that, ah, it seems the airplanes got Kong. Denham then smiles sadly and says, It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. And that's the end. It's literally so amazing for its time. It's, it's iconic, with, yeah. Yeah, the model work with the, the stop motion, absolutely good. Willis O'Brien, I would easily resurrect you if I had the magic know-how, I guess. Guess what? Uh, you know, I, I called uh, Ray Harryhausen his Padawan, and that's kind of true. If you really want to see the legacy of that, then you see it in Ray Harryhausen. And thing is, I think he still he went all the way to the nineteen eighties. So he did. we're definitely going to be seeing him for a while if we ever do see any of his content. Yeah, uh, the the movie the movie Clash of the Titans though the version that I saw was the one on TBS, which is a cable channel, and it had there was two scenes that are absolutely unnecessary. I was shocked when I saw the the actual DVD copy because I was like, I don't remember this being in there. So there's two scenes that, you know, we would have to ignore to watch that movie. But the thing is, though, uh, it's there's so many other great Ray Harryhausen. Uh, Valley of Guanji uh, is really good. Let's see. Uh, the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Uh, there's another one called 20 Million Miles to Earth. Which is kind of an there's an alien creature from Venus. That sounds interesting. It is good. It's very it's very well done. I liked it a lot. And um, another thing, the set design, absolutely with especially that wall set that ends up in Gone with the Wind being burned down, uh, as we talked about earlier. Go watch that segment if you haven't. <laughs> uh, but just the model design and set design. One hundred percent, and the and the music, the music, and the music. The thing is, the music just completed it. Thing is, it's also an hour and forty minutes, which also completes a movie with those extra thirty minutes. Seriously, you watch Frankenstein; it feels like a hollow shell compared to this. Maybe it's just the quality, but who knows? I, I like I said, I think of Frankenstein and Frank and Bride of Frankenstein as one movie. So it's technically more than. More than even King Kong's length, technically, if you count them as a bundle deal. So, what is filmed is what is needed. And there's some movies that you know you wish there was a little more, a little bit less. I think Frankenstein 
is the perfect length. I think King Kong is the perfect length. Um, I think any more than that, and I think you're adding material, which, of course, I think that's one of the complaints. I ha- that would be extraneous. Well, that, that's is, one of the complaints I had about the uh, 2005. They just added too much. Some of the scenes were extraneous and, and unneeded. Thing is, you need to have wisdom and judgment when it comes to these things because some things you can see if they're actually extraneous or if there's the director's vision. And if you encroach upon the director's vision, then you are probably going to have a bad time if you absolutely morph their vision by just taking out several like scenes that are very important to their vision. I'll so. let you be the judge when you see those. But uh that was this movie. Yeah, absolutely. King Kong I think is a classic. I do think that they wanted that sweet King Kong money. About nine months later, uh, they created Son, Son of, of Kong. Son of, yeah. Son of Kong came out, and we'll have to see if if it's uh, a better film or if it's uh, possibly a cash grab. We'll have to wait and see on our next episode about that. So uh, yeah, that was this episode, and uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. And tune in next time for an exciting and wonderful uh, Son of Kong, the Eighth Wonder of the World. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, so make sure to go see that one if you... Make sure to go see this movie and then compare it to Son of Kong to see what was done right and what was done less right. (laughs) Right. So I would like to bid you all adieu. And uh, I hope that that uh, that you enjoyed this movie as much as we did. Um, and we'll see you next episode. See you then. Come on, grapes, melons, oranges, and coconut shells. Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at cinematicfanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast ending transmission now